Medtronic Technologies impacted more than 72 million people in the last year, equating to two people every second. Harnessing the power of technology to take healthcare further, each technology has unique benefits designed to serve patients. The goal of this program is to get closer to the patient and to delve into the challenges and impact each technology has in practice. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. The BIS monitoring system should not be used as the sole basis for diagnosis or therapy and is intended only as an adjunct in patient assessment. Reliance on BIS system alone for intraoperative anesthetic management is not recommended. Medtronic's medical education programs are offered to provide attendees education on the FDA-cleared indications and use of our products when applicable. The contents and conclusions of the following program are solely those of the speakers unless otherwise cited. The speakers are responsible for all content and any necessary permissions. The speakers received funding from Covidian LP, a Medtronic company, for the speaking engagement. For this segment of the series, a discussion on anesthesia in the brain, a conversation about how biz can be helpful with managing hypotension and hypertension with Dr. TJ Gann, professor of anesthesiology and distinguished endowed chair at Stony Brook University, and Dr. Stephen Bader, chief of cardiothoracic anesthesiology at Heritage Valley Health System in Beaver, PA. Uh, so I have a great story about hypertension. Um, you know, a common uh, thought is, you know, that I've given the patient too much and that, that I'm obviously over anesthetizing them, yet I'm still having this episode of hypertension, right? So an example for me would be an anesthetist calls me into the room uh, to evaluate the patient because they've been operating for a little while and the pressure has just been climbing during the case patient's blood pressure is now, you know, alarmingly high and the anesthetist will relay to me, you know, I gave them a whole bunch of fentanyl uh, and, you know, surgery really hasn't, stimulation hasn't really changed much. Uh, you know, we're kind of in the middle of the case. And, uh, you know, if you have a BIS monitor, you can get some reassurance that in fact, what's happening is uh, the patient is requiring more narcotic and it's appropriate that you're treating them because they are, you know, let's say the BIS number uh, is rising with the blood pressure, you can say, okay, well, they just need more anesthetic agent or more narcotic. You know, I, I don't know how many times I've found that the infusion of remifentanil was disconnected under the drapes, right? And immediately you come in the room, the patient's hypertensive, the anesthetist that have been doubling the remifentanil, and then you, you investigate because they're light despite, you know, the drug being increased. So if you have an inappropriate response to your therapy, having the BIS confirm you know, oh, this is a pitfall. We had a disconnection of the IV, uh, whether it's a TIVA case or you're just using an opioid uh, infusion. It's very easy for that to happen. Or the IV that you're bolusing your drugs into has become disconnected under the drapes, especially robotic surgery. You know, the room is dark. The patient's like six feet from you. <laughs> They're under drapes. You can't get at them and you have nine feet of IV tubing. Uh, having the BIS monitor, since you can't really assess a lot of the physical signs easily in those cases, really can confirm your okay, this hypertension is just from the patient being light. Uh, and, I, and I think that's really valuable, especially in situations, like I said, where you can't uh, necessarily do all of your usual physical assessments you know, because of your remoteness from the patient. I'm sure you've had that happen to you, Dr. Gann, where the resident or the anesthetist had the IV fall out or disconnect. And one of your first clues is that they're hypertensive. If they're you know, paralyzed, you're really your first sign is going to be tachycardia and hypertension not movement, you know? Yes, ab absolutely. I think uh, the other scenario is the, uh, you know, the opposite scenario where you are faced with an episode of hypotension, 
Um, let's say the blood pressure dropped to uh, 75 systolic. And so from the uh, clinician perspective, you were trying to decide, okay, what are the differential diagnosis? Why, uh, why is the blood pressure low, right? Typically we will consider uh, either it's preload issues where it's inadequate fluid or uh, uh, cardiac function issue, the heart is not pumping enough or um, uh, post, uh, you know, whether there's vasodilatations uh, in the case of, for example, induction with uh, propofol. So while the natural tendency is to, when you are faced with that scenario, uh, many people would reduce their anesthetic, whether it's inhalational or intravenous. The question is, that, is that the right thing to do? And without the uh, process EEG, we simply don't know what is the level of that patient's sedation. It may be an inappropriate step to just simply reduce the inhalation or intravenous anesthetic. Uh, if the base is sitting, let's say 60, 65, where reducing the anesthetic would increase the risk of patient awareness. And uh, so having that base value will help me to decide whether, you know, yes, you treat the hypotension, but should I reduce the anesthetic? If the base say is 30, yes, that it would be appropriate to reduce the anesthetic, but not when the base is 60, 65. So that is where I think this will help in troubleshooting what is the right approach or what is the right step to take in the presence of hypotension. Yeah, I think um, I agree completely that hypotension, um, when you take a look at the patient and you say, well, what is the reason I'm having hypotension? You know, in a boring case, you might assume it's us, right? So that everything's been going smoothly. There's not really been any other changes and the pressure's just been dwindling. And now I'm sort of thinking to myself, maybe the patient's just a little too deep. Having the BIS there confirms that for you and you can confidently lighten them up. Or, you know, you have a really sick patient, a classic example uh, where I've routinely used the BIS is a thoracotomy, right? So we have the patient on their side. Uh, they're typically an older, sicker person having a really big surgery, right? A big stimulating surgery. So we tend to give them pretty large doses of drugs, you know, to keep them asleep for this big, you know, thoracic incision. And then, uh, you know, when we have that episode of hypotension, there's usually more than one possibility besides having overdone it with the anesthesia, right? You've got constant fluid shifting, surgeons losing blood, um, you know, maybe we've just gotten behind because we're typically trying to fluid restrict those patients. So we've been under resuscitating them fluid wise purposely, you know, at the request of the surgeon to preserve post-operative lung function. So you've kind of got this quandary situation when you uh, encounter hypotension in a more complex patient, you know, a sick patient. And it's very easy to say, okay, I'll just keep them really light. Those patients are all given muscle relaxant. So they're paralyzed, they're not gonna move in the indication of being too light. Having the BIS there uh, as part of your evaluation of hypotensive episodes is critical. I mean, it's super valuable to me in those. So if I have the patient as hypotense uh, and I can look at the BIS and say, well, their BIS is 30, maybe we've just been overdoing it with the sufentanyl. <laughs> Uh, or alternatively, the blood pressure is low, but the BIS is reading in the 60s because we've been lightening them up to try and battle this under-resuscitated, sicker, older patient. 
so I do think it has tremendous value in both the routine cases, but even more so in sicker, more complicated patients and, and procedures. Okay. So another scenario is that when you have uh, hypertension um, during the anesthetic, uh, how do you manage that? Well, the often uh, practitioner would then say, okay, maybe that the patient is uh, not receiving enough anesthetic. Let's turn up the inhalational agent, dial it up or increase your propofol. Uh, while that might be the right thing to do, but it may not be the right thing to do, right? Um, so having a base value will directly pinpoint to see what is the right thing to do. Let's say you are hypertension of 190 systolic, uh, over 200 systolic, and your base is reading, let's say 45, for example, then I think that increasing the anesthetic is unlikely to treat their hypertension. It maybe is probably better off to use a specific antihypertensive drug to treat that. Uh, because your base, the patient is already adequately uh, sedated. And so that is uh, another common scenario is that, you know, you have tachycardia. Uh, is the patient light? The common tendency is to increase uh, the anesthetic and potentially maybe give a dose of uh, um, opioids. And, and again, that may or may not be the right approach. Uh, and having base value will narrow um, the, uh, the, uh, the better pinpoint what is the right treatment in that scenario. So you have to assess what is the level of sedation. If the sedation is inadequate, yes, the right thing to do is increase your anesthetic. But if the sedation based on this is adequate, then the right approach will be use specific agent, either antihypertensive or drugs to reduce heart rate to treat that particular patients in that scenario. Yeah, I think it's funny. You alluded to something that I, um, is a practice style thing that I think varies by region and maybe anesthesia training programs. The, uh, the reluctance of anesthesia providers in general to treat tachycardia and hypertension uh, with antihypertensives rather than anesthetic agents, right? So when you have the patient as a black box that you uh, see them having this response of hypertension, uh, and you assume based on the situation that it must be an imbalance of anesthesia to stimulation and therefore I will give more anesthesia without the BIS monitor, you know, most of us are going to lean towards really giving pretty gigantic doses of anesthetic before we consider using antihypertensives, right? You see this all the time that someone's been treating a patient's, you know, primary hypertension problem uh, with opioids the entire case. And when you have a BIS monitor to tell you, well, the BIS is high, and the patient is hypertensive in response to the surgical stimulation, I'm confident I can just give, you know, triple or quadruple the usual amount of opioid or anesthetic agent to that patient because I have the confirmation of my suspicion. I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen that many times that, uh, you know, residents in particular um, are real reluctant to treat tachycardia with a beta blocker when they can just give a lot more anesthesia. It's comfortable, right, to use the anesthesia agents. Having the BIS certainly, you know, encourage you to treat with the appropriate, uh, you know, antitachycardia therapy or antihypertensive therapy as opposed to using more anesthesia. Conversely, you know, you can have the opposite problem where you have somebody, I'm sure you've had the situation where a resident or uh, an anesthetist has 
given beta blockers for tachycardia and <laughs> probably the patient was just light or had some other uh, reason. You know, I see hypoventilation induced tachycardia and hypertension all the time, you know, that uh, we're so focused on the anesthesia, sometimes we forget about the ventilation or other parameters, the patient's position. You know, you put the patient on their head for a robot surgery uh, to get it to the pelvis and, you know, they're being underventilated because their pulmonary pressures are high in the, you know, steep Trendelenburg position. Uh, and really when we're treating their, their hypertension, sometimes we could be treating it with better ventilation. You know, so it's that take a look at the whole patient and the BIS gives you confidence to eliminate that anesthetic depth question from your algorithm. You know, have you had that happen to you that somebody was using hypertensives, antihypertensives instead of opioids? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, often that uh, younger patients who, you know, who have very active sympathetic drive and often will have um, tachycardia hypertension and we often think that, well, that is because of inadequate anesthesia and therefore deepen anesthesia, uh, which in fact, if you see the, if you have a base value that tells you that a patient is adequately anesthetized, adequately sedated, and it may be that this patient, you know, have an overactive sympathetic drive. Uh, and if it goes, you know, above what you are comfortable with, maybe you need a specific drug to, uh, to treat the blood pressure and heart rate. Yeah, it's funny. We stereotype like older patients, you know, we want to give them less. We assume they're going to need less anesthesia and therefore younger patients must all just need a lot more anesthesia. And I think we do occasionally, you know, because of those sort of uh, mental traps we've set for ourselves, you know, oh, this young guy is going to need a lot of anesthesia. And then we overdo it for the guy who really didn't need a lot of anesthesia. He just uh, has a very active sympathetic drive. Yeah, absolutely. I see that. Please tune in next week for a new segment from this series wherever you find your podcast. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. Thank you for listening.